You're listening to City Beat, the weekly podcast from online daily, urbanmilwaukee.com. I'm your host, Jeremy Janine. Today on the show, we're joined by Milwaukee historian extraordinaire, uh, city streets expert, and now a hist- uh, expert in Milwaukee's Irish history, Carl Bear. Carl will be joining us for the next half hour to talk about all things Irish history, ironically right after St. Patrick's Day, but I'm sure there's still some green beer out there that you can go find. Stay with us. Don't touch that dial. Close that app. Hit mute button. Whatever you might do to turn us off, please don't do it. We'll make sure you're entertained for the next half hour. And if not, the leprechauns are coming for you. Carl Bear, welcome to City Beat. Thanks, Jeremy. So I want to get the name of the book out there right away, just so if people are in front of a computer and they want to know, hey, what does this beautiful 300, 250-ish page book look like? It is called From the Emerald Isle to the Cream City, A History of the Irish in Milwaukee. What inspired you to write this? A curiosity about the Irish history of Milwaukee. <laughs> and, are, and are you Irish or what, what, I guess, why not Polish? Why not German? I guess it's because I'm Irish. <laughs> <laughs> in spite of the name. And, and I noticed in the back of the book you have a defense of your non-German heritage. <laughs> That's right. Uh, so how far back have you traced your family's origins? Can you you know, talk about the potato famine and your family's role in it? Uh, yeah, I suppose I could. Uh, the, the, the big thing is my great-grandfather was adopted into the Bear family, so I have this very German name, but my ancestry is predominantly Irish. All right, and how long, I guess, have you been in Milwaukee? We should start with a little background on you. Born and raised, lived in the area all my life. Born and raised, and are you just Milwaukee, or you've been around the whole area? And I believe you've lived in St. Francis for a while. Right, Wauwatosa. Wow, so you've had Milwaukee. So you haven't left Milwaukee County. You are born and raised, true and true. That's right. All right, and I guess before we go any further, the one thing people might really recognize you on Urban Milwaukee is your City Streets column, but that also is a book you've written. Tell us a bit about that and when that all happened. Uh, It was published uh, 25 years ago. When I was a teenager, I used to take the bus downtown from the north side, and every time the bus stopped at a corner, I'd see a new street sign, and I'd wonder, why is that street called Meineke? Why is it called Ring? What's Burleigh? So... uh, I think it was in the early 80s I started checking to see if there was anything available in Milwaukee on it, and there was not. So I spent about five or six years researching the 800 street names in Milwaukee. And we're talking pre-internet, so how does that research work? Well, uh, the major resources in Milwaukee where the uh, Register of Deeds where plat maps are kept, and many of those plat maps show the subdivision, the subdivision developers, their surveyors, and other people involved with it. And those are very good sources for finding out why the streets have the names they have. And so this means you're spending all kinds of time in the courthouse then? That's true. And so how does that, you wrote that book about 25 years ago, we flash forward to today. What is, I guess, how does the internet help you? Uh, I'm actually working on the second edition of the street name book now. Uh, It helps to fill in the data or the information on those people. There's a a lot of newspapers online now, census data, naturalization records. There's just a wide range of information that you can fill in the gaps, tell more about the background of the people or the street names if they're not involved with people. 
So when you're researching the uh, from the Emerald Isles or the Cream City book, you're not necessarily spending all your time in the Register of Deeds office looking up that type of history. What sources really did this the information in this book come from? Uh, much of it was from newspapers. Milwaukee Public Library, the Golden Meir Library have newspapers on microfilm. And uh, more recently, a lot of that information is available online. And it makes it a lot easier to research. And I've read this book. It, it does not read at all like something that, you know, Carl just went and he found a one-page newspaper article and he turned it into a three-fourth-page newspaper article and compiled them into a book. You really have quite the history, especially in the 1800s, of Milwaukee's Irish heritage. How did you manage to make all these stories kind of fit together? What is the central theme beyond just the Irish history of Milwaukee that allows all these stories to connect? Well, some of them are major events that uh, many people might be familiar with, like the, uh, the sinking of the Lady Elgin or the Third Ward fire. And let's talk a bit about those. Let's assume I know nothing about them. All right. Uh, just prior to the Civil War, surprisingly, Wisconsin was threatening to secede from the Union and declare war against the United States. And the governor at the time, Alexander Randall, went to the captain of the Milwaukee Irish Militia Company called the Union Guard and asked if they declared war against the United States, would he support Wisconsin or the country? And he said most of his men had taken an oath of allegiance to the United States, and that's where they would stay. The governor didn't like that answer, so he disbanded the group and took their weapons away. So they had to get more weapons. Uh, Garrett Berry, the captain, went to St. Louis to the U.S. Arsenal, he bought 80 muskets for his men. The muskets cost $2 each for a total of $160, and they decided to have a fundraiser to raise the money to pay for them. So for $1, supporters could get on the Lady Elgin, which was a uh, luxury liner. It was the queen of the Great Lakes, really. It was a 250-foot-long sidewheel uh, steamboat that had all the luxuries of the time. And as I mentioned, for $1, they could take a trip down to Chicago, spend a day in Chicago, and then come back to Milwaukee. So on the trip back, to, back from Chicago to Milwaukee, there was a raging storm on Lake Michigan that had been going on for hours and hours. And the winds were so strong, it was blowing down trees and fences in Milwaukee and all along the shores of Lake Michigan. And the Lady Elton collided with a relatively small lumber schooner but the schooner poked a hole in the Lady Elgin below the water line. And uh, with 400 people on board, 20 minutes later, the Lady Elgin was at the bottom of Lake Michigan, about three miles off of Winnetka, Illinois. 300 people died, 100 survived. Of the 300 who died, about 170 of them were Irish, most of them from the Third Ward. So it was a, a major loss to the Third Ward, which was an Irish community at the time. And what I couldn't believe in your book was just the extent to which you were able to find information about kind of the ripple effects on family. I mean, obviously, unfortunately, tragically, a lot of families, their bloodlines essentially stopped with that incident. But you were able to find, I can't, don't have names off the top of my head, but Mother O'Reilly lost Father O'Reilly in the incident or something along that line. And we're able to really trace that as kind of things went forward from there. Right. Well, as uh, aside from the newspapers, uh, many of the, the uh, deceased attended uh, St. John's Cathedral, and the uh, cathedral had sacramental, sacramental records, which included baptisms and marriages and deaths. 
So a lot of the information came from church records. Interesting. Also cemetery records. It was just a wide array of records, really, probate records, dozens of different kinds of records. And is that something you, when you're starting out on this book, I assume you know, okay, we're going to, I'm looking here for these records, I'm looking over here for these. Did you envision that you were going to spend a lot of time at St. John's Cathedral or with the Archdiocese looking through their records? Uh, no, I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> but I did, I did have a uh, uh, historical research business that I ran for about 10 years, so I was uh, well acquainted with most of the records that I would need. Ah, okay. So this I did not know about you. Mm-hmm. So you knew, I, I'm not going to say where the bodies are buried, although that, that seems like something <laughs> I should be saying right now. Uh, and I guess I just did. But you really had a sense of how to research this without having actually attempted to even do it yet. You knew, okay, if I run into a wall here, this is another avenue I can go looking That's at. That's correct, yes. What uh, what type of advantage do you think that gives you in writing a book like this? Does it like What is your timeline in writing something like this? It's really hard to say. I really don't consider myself a writer. I consider myself a researcher. But in order to present my research, I had to write it. So That is the problem. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> right. Well, when did you... So the book came out late 2018, I believe. Or was it even summer? It's time moving too fast. No, it was I'm, in November. Okay. Good. Time has slowed down enough. <laughs> it seems like it's been a long winter. Uh, when did you start actually writing the book? Because I know you were probably finished writing the book much earlier in 2018, I have to imagine, between printing and editing and all that. But so that means you probably started when? Uh, well, I started writing it probably at the beginning of 2017. So it took me about a year to write. Okay, that, that's impressive. I think your research probably really <laughs> helped you out there. Yeah. Cause, you but know, I had researched it for probably 17 years before that. I'd been accumulating information on the various topics for, for many years. And is that just out of general interest, or say when you wrote a City Streets column or something, you encountered something of Milwaukee's Irish history there? Well, I did pick up stuff that along there. As a matter of fact, I picked up some Irish history while I was doing the Street Name uh, book 25 years ago. Uh, actually, I picked up information before that while I was researching my own family. So, Interesting. And did you find anything you didn't expect when you were doing that? Uh, I think one of the most surprising things I found was that Wisconsin was considering declaring war on the United States. I had no idea that was the case until I'd gotten into it. Yeah, I I think 11 out of 10 people on the street would have no (laughs) idea that that is the case. Uh, There were some other things that were surprising. Uh, After the Civil War, uh, the Fenians, which was an Irish, uh, pro-Irish group, decided to attack Canada and uh, as we all want to do from time yeah, to time, right. <laughs> and the idea was that they would uh, capture Canada and then trade it back to England. It was a, a British colony at the time. They would trade it back to England in exchange to have Ireland's freedom. Interesting. And uh, there were Milwaukee Fenians. There were Milwaukee Irish people that were part of that invasion. It lasted for a couple of days, and then uh, the United States neutrality neutrality rules kicked in and. Uh, the President of the United States uh, cut off any supplies and reinforcements, so the invasion was really short-lived. Well, I mean, I think our United States history and relationship with Canada is better today because of that, (laughs) but that is quite the interesting story, and there's a lot of them in here. Talk a bit about the Third Ward fire. What, uh, I guess, what did you learn in researching that, 
it's something that I'm aware of. I know that there's very, very few, of a handful of most buildings still in the Third Ward. The fire took place in 1893. Do I have the right year? 1892, October 28th. It started about 5.30 in the, in the evening. It was a very warm day for the end of October. It was in the 60s, but there was very strong winds, 40, 50 miles an hour. And it started in a building called the Union Oil and Paint Company on Water Street between what is now St. Paul Avenue and Buffalo Street. Um, one of the uh, workers in the, at the company, was, it was about 20 minutes before closing time, said he wanted to go home and t take care of his wife who was sick and his coworkers figured it was a Friday, they'd leave early too. And they just walked out of the building and turned onto the sidewalk and there was a huge explosion uh, due to spontaneous combustion. And uh, glass and other debris was showered onto Water Street and uh, the Milwaukee fire chief, James Foley, who was a third warder, was heading toward Walker's Point from 16th and Greenfield. There was a fire there in Greenfield, and then he was heading to a fire in Walker's Point. There was actually 19 fires in Milwaukee that day. And then he saw... Um, it was, do you get the sense that that was unusual for that time, or like fires were just much more common in that day? Fires occurred every day. But with those strong winds, they, the fires were a little worse than normal. So he sent a, a fireboat up the Milwaukee River to start pouring water on this company, which is on the Milwaukee River. And uh, they poured 5,000 gallons of water per minute for about a half hour on that Union Oil and Paint building. And then it appeared to be out, uh, the hundreds of spectators on, was, on Water Street dispersed. Everybody figured the fire was over, and about 15 minutes later, it flared up again. With the strong uh, west and northwest winds, burning debris flew across uh, Water Street all the way to Broadway, started a building over there on fire. Within 20 minutes, that seven-story building was down to the ground. By about 7.30 in the evening, everybody could see that everything was between Water Street and uh, Lake Michigan was going to burn. There was no way they were going to stop it. The Irish residences were wood, wood buildings. They were very close together. And by midnight, 20 uh, square blocks, or parts of 20 square blocks, were burned to the ground. 450 buildings were destroyed, and 2,500 Irish people were homeless. No, I think it's interesting when I try and visualize what this would look like beyond just being tragic. The Third Ward, you, you kind of hit it there. It looked a lot different than it does today. It wasn't these large masonry structures. It was a lot of wood structures, right? right. And But the one thing I've struggled with, and maybe you've come across why, today the Third Ward on the south, or it's always been defined on the south end by the river. It makes sense why the fire didn't spread further south, at least in a large, um, large way. But going north, today there's that 794, Interstate 794 barrier. Why didn't the fire spread into the rest of East Town and downtown? Because of the winds. They, they were just that strong to even keep it from the, the spreading winds were, north. As they say, up to 50 miles an hour. They were coming from the west and northwest. And people were so thrilled that it wasn't a southwest wind. Because if it had been, that would have taken care of Milwaukee probably up to North Avenue. I mean, it was, there was no way they were going to stop the thing once it started raging. People could see the sky lit up from Waukegan to Sheboygan. It was just a massive, massive fire. That is Waukegan. I guess I overlooked that fact in the book. That is quite the anecdote. What uh, we know, the Lady Elgin incident was tragic for the loss of life. 
the third ward incident was tragic kind of for the loss of property. What type of loss of life was there in that? There were five people killed during a third ward fire. Two of them were uh, Irish women uh, who had heart problems. Uh, two of them were firemen who uh, were under a wall that collapsed. And the fifth person was a stranger that nobody knows who he was, but there were five people killed. Hmm. So it was still quite tragic, although nowhere near the loss of life that, say, the maritime incident caused when the boat disappeared underneath right. him. But now I want to move to this this incident that is really interesting to me, and it's uh, I'm sure to you as well, the Newhall House fire. Uh, before we go any further into that, there is, and we'll have him as a guest on the podcast coming up soon, a new book out on just specifically this incident, the Newhall House fire. But Carl, tell us a bit about the Newhall House fire. What was it? Where was it? Why is it significant for Milwaukee's Irish history? Okay, the the Newhall House Hotel was on the corner of Broadway and Michigan. Uh, the war, the historic boundary of the Third Ward was Wisconsin Avenue South, whereas the historic Third Ward is from the freeway south. So we don't consider that location of uh, Michigan and Broadway's being in the third ward, but it was. Hmm. Okay. About half of the people that died, 72 people died. Uh, 60, I've, 66 of the people uh, were identified, and 33 of them were Irish, mostly women working in a laundry, housekeeping, kitchen, dining room. So, uh, again, Irish people died. It was a no other ethnic group was affected like the Irish were. And this was a hotel that was regarded as kind of a the luxury hotel of Milwaukee, am I correct? It was a luxury hotel when it was built in 1857. It was uh, the most prominent building in Milwaukee. Businesses would advertise their location in relation to the New Hall House. But in the 25 years between then and when it burned, um, the Plankenton House was built across the river. That became the prestigious hotel in Milwaukee. The Newhall House uh, had fallen at hard times. It had had a number of fires in it. And uh, it was, when the fire started, it was about four in the morning. And uh, the watchman, uh, Bill McKenzie, was on the sixth floor, the top floor of the hotel. And he saw smoke coming out of the elevator. And if he had gone and woken all the people at the time, we wouldn't be talking about it. But his bosses told him that if there's a fire, don't don't uh, alarm our guests. Try to put it out. Well, he wasn't able to put it out. Uh, probably 15 minutes after it started, it, you couldn't possibly have put it out. So people jumped out windows. Uh, about 25 people jumped out and died. Uh, it was a, it didn't take very long for the whole building to burn down. They they spent uh, two weeks afterwards going through the rubble. Uh, digging for the remains of people. and mm. The largest loss of life in a hotel fire in the United States that I could find before that was 14 people. So having 72 people die in a hotel fire was uh, national news, and it, it had a lot of changes throughout the country. Uh, Milwaukee required after that that telegraph and telephone wires be buried underground because the wires hindered... Uh, operations and, and rescue operations. And uh, many of the cities around the country followed suit. So, and there, was, there were a lot of fire uh, regulations that changed because of the Newhall House. And uh, they figured many people were saved over the following years because of those improved regulations. I, I 
I believe it. It took, I guess, when when reading your description of the fire, it kind of went from sad to sadder to tragic in a, a hurry. And the one thing I guess I'd never considered until really reading it was the impact of all these telegraph wires, streetcar lines, all that aerial infrastructure, we'll call it, dangling between the people in the windows and the people on the ground. And also one thing that surprised me was how, despite the fact that buildings, as you mentioned before, the fires were much more common, it didn't seem like the fire department was really prepared to kind of catch anyone that was coming out of the building. They had these big, uh, I don't know if you call them carpets, rugs, blankets, I guess, that they were trying to catch people. They were jumping, they called them jumping canvas or stretching canvases. They were 15 feet square. And it turned out that the firemen were holding the canvas improperly. They were holding it uh, out in front of them. So when weight hit the canvas, they would just pull their arms down. Instead, they were supposed to lock their elbows and hold it up under their chins so that when the weight hit the canvas, their arms would still be holding the canvas upright. And that is sad just hearing it again. I remember reading it in the book. Uh, So we've talked a lot about sad things in Milwaukee's Irish history. Are there any happy things in your book? (laughs) Yes, I can't <laughs> yeah. think of them right offhand, but no, there was plenty. I mean, there was, there were plenty of being being when the Irish started coming in there, the country was mostly Protestant, the Catholics were the Irish were mostly Catholics, and there was a lot of uh, animosity toward them. There was an, a, a political party called the American Party, which was formed specifically to uh, inhibit the immigration of Irish Catholics. Um, so they were they were not happy I mean the beginning years were not good they were looked down on but about the time of the Civil War uh, many Irish joined the Union forces and helped uh, keep the Union together and uh, some of them there was two uh, two Medal of Honor winners during the Civil War from Milwaukee they were both Irish and uh, so the Irish stock started going up. Also during the 1860s, uh, an Irish Catholic named Edward O'Neill was elected mayor four times. And uh, so things started improving uh, for the Irish. And of course, many of them became successful. You look at uh, a number of streets and parks today have Irish names of Irish people. Uh, there were uh, a lot of success stories uh, for people of a certain age, they'll remember uh, a couple of actors who were well-known during the heyday of uh, Hollywood. Uh, Pat O'Brien and Spencer Tracy were both Irish Catholics born in, uh, <coughs> in Milwaukee. <coughs> so there was, uh, there was a lot of success, and uh, of course, there's a lot of successful uh, descendants of those people in Milwaukee today. All right. Well, we only have a couple minutes left. Uh, I'm going to give you a little uh, notice right now that in a couple minutes I'm going to be asking for your favorite underrated Milwaukee restaurant or bar. But first I want to talk more about the City Streets um, column you write and the update you have coming for your book on Milwaukee Street Names. You mentioned before what inspired you to kind of start. You were riding the bus and you are just seeing these names go by. What uh, keeps you going, I guess, because you've really become kind of the, I don't want to say kind of, you are the go-to source, your original book, now the column, and I'm sure the updated book will surpass all of this, the source, not only for just what is Meineke, but kind of 
who are these people? There's not a lot you can find on them, and you managed to dig it all up. Uh, what keeps you going? I just I love to research. That's my passion. I just I love to research. And has there been a particular one that has really struck you? Like, wow, this is you know great to write about, great to read about. I have one in particular, but um, oh, I'm curious what yours is. Oh boy, I like them all. You like them all? <laughs> Many of the people are dead. You don't need to worry about offending <laughs> anyone, Carl. If you have a favorite, go for it. <laughs> I was particularly interested when you did Mason Street, and you probably wrote that for Milwaukee a number of years ago now, but it's still on the website if anyone wants to read about it. Just the kind of connections to the Midwestern territory that it has and all the different figures who kind of show up in the story was really interesting for me. Right. Stephen Thompson Mason was uh, the, a governor of Michigan Territory which included Milwaukee at the time. And uh, I guess one of the interesting things about him is that uh, when they were talking about making Michigan a state, uh, Michigan decided that they needed more people, so they attacked Toledo <laughs> in order to, uh, they wanted to uh, annex Toledo so they'd have enough people to have uh, a state. Need, I think they needed 60,000 people. The, the stories from these days are really amazing. We're going to attack Canada. Wisconsin's going <laughs> to leave the Union. We'll just capture Toledo. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, I personally think we should go conquer Cudahy right now. You've inspired me. <laughs> uh, Cudahy, by the way, was founded by a, an Irish immigrant. There Pat, we go. Patrick Look, it Cudahy. brought a full circle. <laughs> All right, so that definitely qualifies. We'll go take Cudahy after this. Uh, if you're listening to this on April 1st, we maybe were serious, maybe we weren't. Look if Cudahy is still a city. Uh, all right, well, let's get to uh, some things you see about town, and particularly your pick for underrated restaurant or bar, because I know you are a big walker. What is, I guess, your favorite area of the city to walk in? Well, uh, we live near Cathedral Square, and we have about a two-mile radius, so any place from North Avenue down into Walker's Point. Um, I'd say my favorite restaurant is probably the Swinging Door in the Mackey Building on Michigan Street. And is there any Irish connection to that building? No, not that I know of. Okay, because there's all kinds of history. Like the first telegraph line came into that space <laughs> and everything. My favorite bar is probably Taylor's on uh, Jefferson Wells. Well, bless Urban Milwaukee's b Irish publisher Dave Reed's heart because <laughs> that is music to his ears, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, when is the expected publishing for this City Streets book? Oh, it's got to be at least a year away. All right, well, research faster. The people, they want it. <laughs> And we should acknowledge your publisher, Everything Goes Media. Is that who you're working with for the City Streets book as well? Uh, I'm not sure yet. All right. Remains to be seen. But it could possibly be. Sharon Woodhouse has done a great job with the Irish book and would probably with the street name book also. All right. Anything else you want people to take away from the Irish history book? I guess the thing that I think most of is just that it's so hard to be an immigrant. You know, immigrant groups come in and nobody likes them. Everybody picks on them and... It's just difficult. Oftentimes they don't have skills. and uh, I think that's the main thing I thought. It's hard to be an immigrant. Well, it's good to see that that's changed entirely in the country <laughs> yeah, today. Right. There's no right. <laughs> well, that is, that is actually a perfect takeaway because that is something that really comes throughout the book is really the struggle of the people not just to make it coming from a distressed country in many cases, and that's not just the Irish, the Italians, a lot of people face that. But then when they get here, they really continue to face it. The Civil War was no walk in the park. There was all kinds of challenges, and they persevered. They're still here. Uh, so, Carl Barrett, thank you for joining City Beat. Any parting words? 
Goodbye. Yeah, goodbye. <laughs> All right. Our guest today has been Carl Bear, who writes the City Streets column for Urban Milwaukee. His book, From the Emerald Isle to the Cream City, A History of the Irish in Milwaukee, is available at great bookstores everywhere. If you're looking for it, search for it online. You'll find it at all kinds of different outlets. Carl, thanks for joining City Beat. Everyone else, thanks for listening. Stay warm. Have fun in Milwaukee. Summer is coming.